Last week, we got about a third of the way through Zechariah. His book is, for the most part, an apocalypse, which means it's about the end times. And we saw several great examples of pretzel time in it, where prophecies are clearly meant to encourage Joshua and Zerubbabel in the present rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, but are also specifically to be fulfilled in the day of the Lord. Uh, We'll see more of that today. Uh, And in addition to the present and the future, we'll also see direct references to Israel's past. We start off in chapter five. We're still on that same night, February 16th, 519 BCE. And Zechariah is about to see his sixth vision of the night. The angel asks Zechariah, what do you see now? And Zechariah says, I see a flying scroll about 11 yards long and five and a half yards wide. That's a big scroll and it's flying. The scroll has writing on both sides of it. On one side is everyone who steals and has gotten away with it. And on the other side is everyone who swears lies in the Lord's name and has gotten away with it. I want to note that the translation I am using as my primary source for this part of Zechariah is the Hebrew Bible, a translation and commentary by Robert Alter, published in New York in 2019 by Norton. I am also consulting other translations such as the NRSV, NIV, and NASB, but I'm using them primarily for comparison purposes. And some of this is my own translation work. So if your translation says something different, know that there is a range of possibilities, and I have opted for the most up-to-date scholarship available to me. So this flying scroll has thieves on one side and those who swear false testimony in the Lord's name on the other. And the Lord says this scroll will enter their houses and dwell there. Think about that. What happens when the Lord dwells with us? Nothing evil can remain, right? And sure enough, the Lord says the scroll will cause an utter end to their houses. In his seventh vision, Zechariah sees an ephah, which is a type of basket used as a measurement in trade. And the angel tells Zechariah, this is crime throughout the land. So pretty clearly, there's a big problem with unjust weights, which is obviously basically stealing from people. As Zechariah watches, the lid of the basket, a lid made out of lead, is lifted and he sees a woman inside. The angel says, this is wickedness. So let's stop here and note that the female is portrayed as being wickedness personified. We find that a lot in the Bible, but we also find the female portrayed as wisdom and strength and nobility, but somehow the Judeo-Christian culture has latched firmly onto the negative connotation of the female, and it has become the dominant view Be aware of this bias. I want you to notice it and call it out. All women are not in view here. 
it should not be taken as women being universally wicked. So, so this is just a female personage who is representing in this vision wickedness. So to continue, the angel throws the woman who represents wickedness down into the basket and drops the leaden lid over the top. Then Zechariah sees two more women. They have wings like a stork. Very strange. I have no idea what the significance of a stork might be to these ancient people. If you research it and find out, let me know. But these, these two women he sees, he sees next have wings like a stork and they lift the measuring basket that has wickedness sealed inside of it and they carry it off to Babylon where its foundation is. The ancient Hebrew here for foundation has a connotation of seed or roots, which is very interesting. It's just interesting that, that, that they take the basket of wickedness back to Babylon. At any rate, wickedness is taken far, far away from Israel. We now come to the eighth and last vision of the night. Zechariah sees four chariots going out from between two mountains made of copper. The chariot with black horses goes north, the one with white horses goes west, the one with dappled horses goes south, and the one with red horses goes out over all the earth. And the angel tells Zechariah that these are the four winds of heaven who have been standing in attendance before the Lord. And the Lord says, see, the ones going to the north have pleased me. Now, there is no explanation in the text for what this means. But chariots invariably mean war. So whatever has happened in the north has to do with war. I think any further interpretation of this is going to veer into the area of speculation. It could mean lots of things. And that's the last of Zechariah's eight visions that night. The next thing that happens sounds like a lot of the stuff Jeremiah and Ezekiel used to have to do. Remember Jeremiah's linen belt and visit to the potter's house? or Ezekiel's model of Jerusalem and his pretend army men and skillet. Remember that? Well, the Lord tells Zechariah to go get some gold and silver from some of the exiles who recently arrived from Babylon and make crowns out of it. Crowns, plural. He's to take one of the crowns and put it on the high priest Joshua and say, Here is the man named Branch. He shall branch out and build the Lord's temple. Wait a minute. Joshua, the high priest, is the branch, the Messiah? That can't be right. I mean, sure, he's building the new temple, but this doesn't sound right. But before we panic, let's remember what the Lord said last week. He said, Joshua, you and your associates are men symbolic of things to come. That's straight out of Zechariah 3, 8. Joshua and Zerubbabel and whomever else the Lord has in view here are symbolic of things to come. So that must mean that here in Zechariah 6, 12, this crown is being placed on the high priest Joshua 
as a person symbolic of the branch, the Messiah. This is a perfect example of a prophecy that has two purposes. First, an encouragement to the historical Joshua, who is struggling to get this new temple built. And second, pointing to the Messiah to come, whose name, by the way, will also be Joshua. Joshua is Hebrew for Jesus. The Lord goes on to say, he shall bear the glory and he shall sit on his throne and rule. Obviously talking about the Messiah here. And the priest shall be by his throne and the plan for peace shall be between them. So I've translated this a little clumsily, but the idea is that the Messiah will sit on his throne and the high priest will be beside him and the two of them will counsel together for peace. We need to think about this for a minute. Some Jewish sects, including the Essenes uh, at Qumran, who were the ones who gathered and stored the Dead Sea Scrolls around the time of Jesus, those Jewish sects believed there would actually be two different messiahs. One would be a king and the other a high priest, and they would work together. These sects then take all the other messianic prophecies and sort them between the kingly ones and the priestly ones and build up their theology accordingly. The belief in two different messiahs is not a mainstream Jewish belief nowadays, but it was big during Jesus's time. And that belief is rooted in this passage in Zechariah. Now, remember that the Lord told Zechariah to make more than one crown. Only one of the crowns is to be placed on the high priest, Joshua. It never says how many other crowns there are or who gets them. The only other thing we know is that afterwards, the crowns are to be placed in the temple as a reminder, specifically to those coming from Babylon, that the Lord has sent Zechariah to them. So what do we do with this prophecy? Are there really going to be two messiahs? I don't think so, and here's why. If you notice, the Lord had Zechariah put the kingly crown on Joshua, who is already the high priest. I think the Lord is having Zechariah literally demonstrate that the role of king and of high priest are going to be combined in one and the same person. But you could honestly interpret this either way. Like I said, this is a one-off sort of passage, and there is little support nowadays for a two-Messiah theory. So back when they were in Babylon, the exiles fasted every fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months in memory of the date Nebuchadnezzar breached the walls of Jerusalem, the date the temple was burned, the date Governor Gedaliah was assassinated, and the date the final siege began. Now that the exiles are back in Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, they ask if they should continue these fasts of mourning. And God tells Zechariah two things. God says, instead of fasts, which mainly seem to be centered on yourselves, what I want is for you to administer justice in the courts and show each other mercy and compassion. Do not oppress the needy. 
and in your hearts, do not plot evil against each other. It's the exact same thing God has said over and over and over again. And if that's the first thing God says, what would be the second thing? He says, I am coming to live with you. I myself will dwell in Jerusalem. The elderly will sit in the streets and watch the children play. I, I will save my people and will bring them back to live here with me. Those old fasts of mourning will become a time of gladness. Many people and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to pray before Yahweh. In those days, 10 people from other languages and nations will grab hold of one Jew's clothing and say, let me come with you for I have heard that God is with you. Notice the end time wording and theme. God is so consistent in his message to his people across all these prophets across hundreds of years. But in response to the question about whether they need to continue all these fasts of sorrow, the answer appears to be an emphatic no. I'm reading between the lines of Ezra chapter four here. Uh, no, sorry, Ezra chapter five here. But it sounds like Joshua and Zerubbabel are encouraged by Zechariah's words, and they resume work on the temple. And of course, the locals who had agitated for the work to cease in the first place are not happy. And the whole situation gets escalated to the Persian governor of the Trans-Euphrates region, which would be the region west and south of the Euphrates. So this guy is very important and very powerful, and his name is Tatanai. Upon hearing the complaints of the locals, Governor Tatanai and his officials send a letter to King Darius the Great saying, you should know that the people in Judah are building a huge temple. We asked them who gave them permission to do this. And they said they are servants of the God of heaven and earth and that this is his temple. And they said King Cyrus gave them permission to build this temple and even gave them gold and silver articles Nebuchadnezzar had taken from this God. So could you have someone search your archives, King Darius, to see if King Cyrus did any such thing and then let us know. And so Darius the Great orders a search and writes a memo back to Governor Tatanai saying, yes, King Cyrus did in fact issue such a decree. The temple is to be about 30 yards by 30 yards with the costs paid by the royal treasury and all the items Nebuchadnezzar took are to be put back where they belong in this temple. So do not interfere at all with this project. In fact, make sure that you pay all their expenses out of your own trans-Euphrates budget. Give them whatever they need for their daily sacrifices and make sure they pray for the well-being of me and my sons. Furthermore, if anyone dares to interfere, pull down their house and impale them on the main beam. <laughs> So as you might imagine, the opposition melts completely away and the temple 
is rebuilt. It is completed on March 12, 516 BCE, in the month of Adar, during the reign of King Darius the Great. Everyone gathers to celebrate the dedication of the temple. All the people, all the priests, and all the Levites. They offer hundreds of bulls, rams, lambs, and goats, and all of the priests and Levites are installed in their various functions and offices according to the law of Moses. The month of Adar is the last month in the Jewish calendar. And the very first festival of the new year is none other than the Passover. So for the first time since returning from Babylon, the Levites slaughter the Passover lamb. And for seven days, all the Israelites joyfully celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. What a poignant celebration that must have been as they rejoice that God has saved them miraculously once again. What a contrast between Pharaoh of long ago, whose heart was hardened when confronted with God, and the completely different response of King Cyrus and of Darius the Great. Whether a king's heart is hard or soft, God will bring his people home. Afterwards, Zechariah continues his ministry in Israel. Zechariah 6.14 says that both prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, are a comfort to the people. We don't hear any more from Haggai, but Zechariah has some important things left to say. Chapter 9 starts off with a judgment on Israel's various enemies. But beginning in verse 9 is a section that is very perplexing. Rejoice, your king comes, righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations and will rule from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. And this is immediately followed by a section that is clearly an end time prophecy. And as Christians, we are very familiar with the imagery of this passage. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey to shouts of Hosanna in the highest. We'll actually celebrate that this this coming Sunday. And Matthew and John literally quote this verse in Zechariah to point out that Jesus fulfills it in that moment. That is definitely the Christian view, and I agree with it. So why doesn't everyone see Jesus in this? How could Jews not see that this is speaking of Jesus? Was there some other historical king who might fulfill this prophecy? Well, remember that Jewish historian Josephus, who was a contemporary of Jesus? He tells a story about the time when Alexander the Great was conquering the world, so roughly 200 years after the time of Zechariah. Alexander is doing his thing, conquering Tyre as he works his way south along the coast of Phoenicia, 
And he asks, he sends a message to the high priest in Jerusalem to send him troops and provisions. The high priest in Jerusalem refuses, saying he's bound under treaty with King Darius not to bear arms against him. This is a later King Darius, by the way, not Darius the Great. Well, Alexander conquers Tyre anyway and continues to press southward all the way to Gaza. Then he turns back north. When the high priest hears that Alexander is on his way back, he panics. He orders everyone in Jerusalem to join in his sacrifices and pray to God for protection. Then God tells the high priest in a dream to have all the priests don their priestly garments and have everyone else dress up in white and throw the gates of Jerusalem open and stand and wait for Alexander to arrive. Well, that's pretty scary, but they do exactly that. And when Alexander gets close enough to see all the people and to see the name Yahweh inscribed on the headplate of the high priest, he orders his column to stop. And he alone comes humbly to the high priest and worships the name of Yahweh. The people with Alexander are absolutely astounded. This is not at all what they expected. And Alexander's top general pulls him aside and says, why did you bow down to that priest? And Alexander says, I didn't bow down to the priest. I was worshiping his God. Because way back at home, before I even started this campaign, a man dressed exactly like that priest, appeared to me in a dream and told me to get up and do all that I was planning, for he would lead my armies and I would be successful. That is a crazy, amazing story, right? And no one knows for sure if it's actually true, but there has to be a reason Alexander didn't did not lay siege to Jerusalem. So clearly the part about opening the gates to him must be true. At any rate, that is another possible interpretation of this passage. So you can't really throw stones at folks who do not see Jesus in this. In fact, in verse 13, the last verse in this particular section, Zechariah actually names Greece as an enemy that Israel will ultimately destroy. So all in all, you could see how folks might um, link Alexander to this passage and see him as the king who fulfills this. Who knows? After this passage, however, Zechariah transitions into full-on end-time prophecy. He says, the Lord will appear over Israel flashing like lightning, he will march in the storms and the Lord of hosts will shield his people. Israel's warriors will become strong in the Lord's hand and God will save his people on that day. In chapter 10, the Lord talks about how his people have been oppressed both by terrible shepherds and by shepherds who have deserted them. It's kind of like this big 
shift of gears between between chapter nine and all this, you know, the Lord protecting them and stuff. And chapter 10, where all of a sudden we're talking about bad shepherds. Uh, and in chapter 10, the Lord is disgusted with these shepherds and, and, and he's going to be their shepherd now. And he says, from Judah will come the cornerstone, which is a term we as Christians understand to be Jesus, the tent peg, the battle bow, and every ruler. I will strengthen and restore Israel because of my compassion for them, for I am their God and I will answer them. I will redeem them and I will gather them back from all the distant lands. There will be so many, there will not be room for them all. Assyria and Egypt's power will pass away. And in my name, my people will live in safety. Chapter 11 seems to be a sort of remembering, almost a lament by the Lord of how he saw the people and their awful shepherds in the time prior to the exile. So this is, this is the history part I was telling you about earlier. The Lord talks about the suffering of the sheep and how they were sheep destined for slaughter and how they drove him, the good shepherd, away. The Lord has had two staffs, two shepherd staffs to guide, defend, and count the sheep. That's what staffs are used for, not to beat the sheep. They're used to usually to count them, but also to defend them and guide them. And there's lots of ways to translate the names of these two shepherd staffs. But one way is to call one delightfulness and the other inherited portion. That word portion has a sense of an allotment or a, a land that has been measured and surveyed. But the shepherds ruling over the sheep were bad shepherds, and the Lord could not stand it anymore. He broke both his staffs and quit and asked the bad shepherds for his wages. And the payment they gave him was 30 pieces of silver. That gives me goosebumps because that is exactly the price Jesus was worth to the religious leaders of his day. The Lord tells Zechariah, fling the silver into the potter's kiln, where, as we know, it will be smelted and purified, right? This is the Lord refining away all that is evil. The whole chapter ends with a poem that says, woe to you, useless shepherds, you who forsake the sheep, Chapters 12, 13, and 14, the last chapters in the book of Zechariah, are vivid descriptions of the day of the Lord. The Lord will be Judah's strength. Judah and Jerusalem will be like a heavy stone, like a bowl of poison to all who try to come against them. The leaders of Judah will be like a flaming torch consuming all those to the right and to the left of them. The Lord will rescue Judah. On that day, the weakest in Judah will be as strong as David and the house of David like Elohim. I will pour upon them a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look upon me whom they pierced and grieve bitterly as for an only child. The Apostle John, writing in the New Testament, 
definitely sees Jesus in this. You can see it in John 19.34, in Revelation 1.7, but it could also be the Lord himself, God, talking about his heart, how his heart has been pierced by his people, and how on the day of the Lord, they will finally understand and repent. I'm not sure Jesus is actually in view here, at least in the context of Zechariah. Jesus is certainly in view in view in the, you know, day of the Lord in its totality, but things kind of, you know, mush together here. On that day, a spring will open up to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of all sin and impurity. There will be no more idols or false prophets. I will bring my hand against the bad shepherds. Two thirds will perish, but one third will be left. And I will bring that third into the refiner's fire and purify them. And he will call out my name and I will answer him. He shall say, the Lord is my God. I love the switch to he at the end. It's as if the refiner's fire takes many and not only refines and purifies them, but makes them one. Wow, so consistent with what we've been learning about how the Lord approaches sin, right? And that brings us to the last chapter in Zechariah. Chapter 14 is the climax of the book. A day is coming. When I, the Lord, will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle, and Jerusalem will be captured and looted, and the women raped, and half the people will be taken, but half will remain in the city. Wait, what? Yes, that is a consistent end-time prophecy that the nations of the world will gather in battle against Israel, specifically against Jerusalem. We've read this several times before, but here we see that the Lord's hand is in the gathering. It is as if the Lord is harvesting the world. The time will come for evil to come to an end, and it will truly be awful for Jerusalem in this cataclysmic day, but the Lord will show up in power. The Lord will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives and it will split in half. Half will shift north and half will shift south. Then Yahweh shall come and all the saints shall come with him. On that day, there will be neither daylight nor moonlight. It will be a single day known to the Lord. And when it is time for evening, it will still be light. I think that's because the Lord is there. And where the Lord is, there is light. On that day, fresh water will flow from Jerusalem, half going east and half going west. So that kind of matches up with the Mount of Olives getting split, you know, and part of it moving north and south. There will be a, a, a channel, a ravine there for this water to flow through at least 
towards the east. And remember that just a moment ago, the Lord said that on this day, a spring will open up to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem from impurity. And remember how Ezekiel saw and waited in a river in his vision, a river flowing out from where God dwells in the end time temple in Jerusalem. These prophecies are also in other places in scripture, including in Revelation. This healing water flowing from Jerusalem is going to be a thing. It will be like this in summer and in winter. And notice here the lengthening of the day of the Lord. The cataclysmic day of the Lord ushers in, quite literally, a new day, a whole new era in which the Lord shall be king over the whole earth. The land will have been flattened, Zechariah says, but Jerusalem will rise high in its rightful place. Never again will Jerusalem be destroyed. After that terrible battle, however, the nations which come against Jerusalem are going to suffer tremendous devastation. The prophecy continues. All those who came against Jerusalem, man and beast, will rot away with a terrible plague. Every one of them will panic and they will fight, fall to fighting each other. I think that is talking about the actual troops during the battle. This is typically how the Lord shows up in battle, right? We remember this from the conquering of the promised land. When the Lord would show up, it would usually be, he would show up and throw utter confusion in the camps of the enemies. But afterwards, the prophecy says, all who are left in the nations that came against Jerusalem will make a yearly pilgrimage to bow to the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So notice that the actual armies of these nations are destroyed by plague and by killing each other, but the people of the nations are welcomed by the Lord, and they become part of the annual campout, the Feast of Tabernacles. That is, unless they don't want to, it says, in which case no rain will fall on their land. <laughs> on that day, holy to the Lord will be engraved on the bells of the horses and on every pot, and all those offering sacrifices will use these pots to cook in. Again, notice that the day of the Lord continues onwards after the cataclysm, but it is an ongoing era of peace. And the prophecy continues, actually ends, saying there will no longer be a trafficker in the house of the Lord. That is a pretty powerful final statement. It really says it all. Instead of trafficker, some translations say Canaanite, which is the literal Hebrew word here, but the meaning is a merchant, a trader, and in the negative sense, a trafficker. I think trafficker is the best of the options as it describes exactly what the Lord has stopped. Justice and mercy have come and the Lord has set everything right. Amazing. We'll use our breakout time to look back across these passages and compare the various evils 
with the Lord's final response. I think it will be eye-opening to see them from a bird's eye view. And of course, as with any other breakout session, it's a time, you know, if, if you have something else that you want to talk about, other questions, it's a time to uh, think that up through and um, bring them back to our discussion together. Welcome back. Turn your mics back on. So what did you talk about? What did you see? What patterns did you see? Go for it, Woody. Go for it, Marlene. <laughs> yeah, no, Woody, Woody had the best insights in our group, I think. Well, it was, it was just a random idea that I, I'd never thought about before. We, we have talked many times about this idea of fire not being a killing fire, but being a refining fire. And so it, the thought occurred to me, I wonder if that could be true about whenever they talk about devastation, um, uh, disintegration, you know, all the, all the kind of uh, radical punishments that are meted out. I wonder if the purpose of those are, are, would be refinement also, just like fire. What do y'all think? What do y'all think? We agree. We kind of thought that punishment, punishment wasn't exactly punishment. It was like that refinement and then a blessing. Mm -hmm. But refinement can, I suppose, refinement can be painful, but it's ultimately beneficial. This is all imagery, right? Just, I think there's a lot to be said by looking at it from this really high level and, mm -hmm. and thinking str like strategically, like you are like, wait a minute, <laughs> if, if fire is, is this, then what about all these other things that we've all, you know, just kind of categorized based on our um, knee jerk reaction and what we've been taught and what, what about these other things that we've never considered in light of who God is and what God's purpose is? Mm -hmm. I just thought of something else on, on like the body's rotting, mm -hmm. for instance. Yes. When anything dies. Regeneration. It regenerates. It's used to the good of the world. Yeah, that that Renee, that that thought just came to me as 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 we were talking too, is you know as as a retired nurse, um, when there is a wound that is infected, it needs to be debrided, and that can sometimes be very painful because you have to remove all the dead tissue, all the infected tissue, and get down to healthy tissue that usually bleeds and hurts when you get to it, mm -hmm. but that facilitates the healing. You got to get rid of the rot and the dirt and the infection. And, and in another way, this could be seen as debriding mm -hmm. the wound. Um, again, a purification process. <laughs> and, but even that way, the stuff that you took away as a nurse, you know, you, it ended up someplace where it could end up. I mean, Jeff is working with a company right now that is taking um, trees from forest fires. 
the need removed. And animals that have been like cattle that have died from floods and stuff, and they are turning it into an organic, really good fertilizer for farmers. But I still see in these verses things. Wow. I mean, I still see, I still see rotting. I still see being flummed to Babylon. I still see um, they're going to panic and fight each other, but then there will be peace. So I guess that's part of that painful process. All that. Yeah. I mean, the part, you know, there's nothing, it says here, they're going to be flown to Babylon and left there. There's, nothing that says it's, and it's not a them it's wickedness is being flown wickedness. to babylon and left oh, oh you're right okay yeah you're right wickedness so babylon could maybe just be uh uh an imagery of uh uh you know oppression and you know a place well, where that stuff well, resides well, <laughs> they also didn't they learn it lessons. from babylon Pardon me? What? Didn't the people while they were in Babylon learn a lot of what wickedness that they brought back to Jerusalem? I think they took a lot of wickedness with them in the first place, but well, yeah, but I mean a lot of the idol worshiping, a lot of the different there's some of that stuff that was in Babylon, they brought those traditions back. I think that they're they certainly acculturated and assimilated and and you know syncretized religion you know god is just significant there is sending it back getting rid of the evil and sending it back where it came from well and it's kind Mm -hmm. of makes me think about you know the fact that 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 israel was in such terrible shape and the lord caused their enemies to take the people and remove them some are scattered all over the world in that first diaspora that from the northern kingdom where Assyria attacked they got scattered everywhere it was only Judah and Jerusalem that got taken those people got taken to Babylon Um, and and so it was only them who were able to be gathered back in this first regathering but it's as if the Lord and it's not as if the scripture is very clear that during that 70 years that they were in Babylon, the Lord let the land rest and have all the Sabbaths it did not have while they were in it. The Sabbaths they should have given the land. The land is a living being in scripture. It has, it can be wounded. It vomits. It can be healed. It needs rest. And and when they, after the land has been healed and made whole, at least from a spiritual point of view, if not a physical one, the Lord allows the exiles to return. And at that point, wickedness, whatever wickedness may be that remains in that land is lifted up put in a basket with a lead lid and flown and dropped in Babylon where the people no longer are, at least for the purposes of this story. And we're going to revisit Babylon. I want you to remember this. We're going to come back to this chapter when we do the New Testament, but we will revisit Babylon when we get to Revelation because there's a whole lot about what the Lord 
plans to do about this wickedness that's sitting over there in Babylon. I have a question. Well, I don't. I'm going to bump this to Renee. Didn't you have a question about the soldiers? Yes. When it says the armies would fight each other, um, weren't in those times, armies were more of a higher echelon than most people. And so wouldn't they, it's more of a choice to be in an army than not? I, I so, don't know if I can make a broad broad statement, but go ahead. And so I was, was wondering if it was because they chose to follow evil. It's that old, they're representing your choice, your free will. You choose to do evil or you don't. So is that what that army is? Is the people choosing not to, to do evil? You know what with? it makes me think of? It's, it's like a parent who has a child and someone comes and lays hands on your child. Mm -hmm. I think this is the Lord's response as <laughs> in that situation. You know, mm -hmm. you got nothing against the rest of their family, nothing against anybody else, but they better not touch your child. Mm-hmm. Oh, th this is just me, but going back for a minute to the the basket being flown back to Babylon, man, I, I think there's a lot of figurative imagery in the Hebrew Bible. And so me, the idea of the basket of evil being flown back to Babylon is like, okay, the, the, the evil is just being taken somewhere else. Right. Away from far, here. far away. Yeah. That's exactly right, Woody. Exactly. We don't want to be thinking of like Iran is bad because this right. is where geography. I mean, that's just baloney. That that is right. not what this mm -hmm. is. Yeah. This reminds me of we'll get to it later in the book of Revelation. But um there's a verse where it says God takes all of our sin and casts it into the sea. And then further on, um, it's talking about the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and all that. And it says, there was no more sea. Mm. And um, very nice. When I, when you were doing the story earlier, before we, you know, broke out, um, as you were doing that part of the story, I kept thinking, is he, you know, they're carrying that, that evil to Babylon and I'm thinking and dropping it in the sea. <laughs> there will be no more sea. I know it's not part of the same story, but that's where my head went. But it's all the same kind of image. It's the same message under different imagery, right? Like Woody is saying, it, it's like what we're trying to get to is the message without being all tied up in the imagery. And, and the kinds of things you're saying are exactly uh, in the right direction. That's what we want, how we want to be thinking. Exactly. Well, another, another thing that, that occurred to me through, through um, looking at this um, that, that I mentioned in the group is that it seems like um, 
one one way to look at some of this prophecy is if you if you think of God's relationship to Israel as that of a parent to a child. Um, when Israel first came out of Egypt and they were just learning a lot of them really just learning about Yahweh from the beginning and, um, and also learning what it meant to be a people. And, um, and so God's lesson object lessons with them were very concrete, very, you know, action, consequence, action, consequence, and very much, you know, I'm your God. I'm the God of, you know, God Abraham. Of Isaac, <laughs> you can yeah. touch it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very, very concrete things. Now Israel is several hundreds year of years later, and they've been through this long time of, of wandering and pulling back and wandering and pulling back twice, going into exile, finally coming back, having this purification process, this maturing process. And so God is able to teach more complex lessons now which includes this expanding of blessing and inclusion, not just to Israel, but to the nations of the world. And it's not just, it's you and me, kid. It's more, yeah, everybody in the neighborhood can come and everybody in the next neighborhood can come. (laughs) And, and, and that would probably not be a, a lesson that would be comprehensible earlier in Israel's history. I mean, they were just learning that they had a mobile God. that wasn't Mm -hmm. tied to place at back in those early days. And that this was a God who said, you know, you don't cheat on me. It's just you and me kid. Um, And, and now there's this broader vision of what God is really doing with all of humanity. I don't think until this point to, to your point, Marlene, that they could have even comprehended God saying, and I will delight in Egypt and Assyria, and they will be precious mm-hmm. to me, right? Mm-hmm. Which we had heard in one of the earlier, earlier prophecies. Pardon, Julia? I was thinking earlier about when, when Woody was still on and you guys were talking about location and symbolism. It's interesting because all this is from the Hebrew people's point of view and their geography. I wonder what the... Bible would look like if it was written now, with us included. Uh, and and, and hold, okay, freeze frame. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a strong possibility that we have that in the holy writings, traditions, and stories of every other culture in the world. I think that God has a heart for everybody and God will speak to everybody in their land, in their, within their culture and in their own language in ways they can come to him. I think we're the ones who have made the divisions and said, oh no, we've got the only version of this story. You can't get to God except through us or actually through Jesus, but it's really through us. You know, 
Because you have to believe who Jesus is, but like we believe who Jesus is. That's right. And and I and I think that Jesus absolutely says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And he's saying, where you find truth, you find me. I am there. Where what is life giving? I am there. The direction that you're going, when I when I am there, you are heading for God. If you know me, you know God. If you know God, you know me. It's it's just, I think your question is really important, Julia. Yeah. That is deep. Uh, Martha, if you're talking, we can't hear you. I've long thought that even in the Christian tradition, within the tradition, that, um, you know, which of the Christians go to heaven, right? Who's right. going to be surprised about who they see there? Um, that as much as some traditions bemoan the Reformation, and I can't say that that wasn't without its problems. The, ter- the church I'm in, the Methodists, have divided and come together and divided and come together, and who knows what's going to happen now. Not excusing um, misuse of religion. Um, I have just long thought that God is going to speak in the voice you can hear. Amen. Mm-hmm. Amen. And even traditions that people consider to be, oh, what is the word? Not not heathen. Uh, what's the heretical? Heretical. heretical. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, um, to many of us who are outside the the LDS church mm-hmm. um, and see some of their beliefs to be just very strange to to outsiders. I don't think it's the details that are really what's important. I think they're worshiping the same God. And I just don't get all excited about it. I think God is, has been showing through all of this story and his interaction with his people that he's just not really hung up on labels. He's mm-hmm. not really hung up on uh the sacrifices that you even though they were the law of moses he keeps saying that's not what i want <laughs> i want you you to treat each other right I want right. To- not the fast i'm looking for exactly <laughs> exactly and don't you think that when someone turns towards what is holy mm-hmm. And does these things, cares for the oppressed, welcomes the immigrant, feeds the poor, does justice, doesn't cheat, doesn't lie. Do you not think God is there? And do you not think that even, even in these various versions of Christianity, 
where we are using our Christianity to separate, abuse, and oppress, and to power, drop to power, be power mongers. Do you not think God is displeased with that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Donna has posed the question in the chat, though, about um, what about I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me as a um, passage that is used and that and that I think what she's saying is is even challenges what we're saying right here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and what I, do we do with that? I, I've um, been sort of evolving in understanding that passage for the last few years. Um, and I may be totally off base here, but but what I'm understanding more is that when when you look at passages like where it says Christ died for all, I mean what what Jesus did in coming to earth, living with us, showing God's example, teaching us a new way of relating to God and then dying and, and being raised from the dead. Um, it wasn't really to create another world religion. It was to more along the lines of conquering death, of restoring people's hope and relationship to God um, without a lot of the paraphernalia that comes to be associated with formalized religion. And we've done it again with many of our churches and with a lot of our procedures. Um, And it really was more Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm the channel, but Jesus isn't saying you have to say the sinner's prayer and go to a Protestant church or you've lost the way. Mm -hmm. Jesus was again, sort of a, a, a contact point, a rest a, a restoration of connection um, in being here and dying and being raised from the dead. It, there's a mystery in that, that I don't fully understand the complexity of it, but I don't think it has anything to do with being a quote unquote Christian. And I, I'm I'm thinking I that um, and of course we're going to dive into this and in, when we get to the New Testament, which is coming ever closer. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> can, can I just add that my little three pound gray matter that's very ADHD was still processing this morning that you wrote the lesson for April twenty eighth. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm behind. I really should be. I'm still. I should be three more ahead of that. Yeah. <laughs> I can't okay. <laughs> I I had a thought on this the 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 way and you know Jesus is the way and you he who believes in me shall have everlasting life. I don't think Jesus is saying you have to say Jesus. I think Jesus is saying that do what I do. And it doesn't matter who you call me. I think that I think that when I when when he says I am the way, the truth, and the life, what leaps out to me is the I am is the essence of God. God. Yes. It is not what you do, it is who 
you are, who you are a part of. And I think Jesus is saying here, it is about being. I, I, I don't do true things. I don't do things. I don't step on this path. That's the way I am the path. I am the truth. I am the life. I think that promise is for all of us. I agree. Wow. And I also want to say on this topic that there's not this great big divide between life now and life in heaven. Life is life. We're living life. The kingdom of heaven is here. Yes. Now we are living in it. So are all these other people living in it. Okay. We each get to respond to it or not. We each do things that are going to show up as gold (laughs) or not. All right. It's, it's far less about which culture were you born in and which religion did you happen to learn than it is about your being, about who you are. Yes. I agree. Two big messages. What you do to the least of me, you do to me. And faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And I'm not, and if you're sitting here listening to this, either live here or later on a recording, you don't have to think the same thing as me. You do not. You do not have to believe the same way I believe. I, I think God will meet each of us where we are. It's God's job to reveal God's self to each heart. That's what Jesus came to do, to make it easier for us to understand. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, but it's not something that... I feel like any of us need to try to beat in any into anyone else. That's not what I don't remember. God's ever saying that anywhere. Donna says still years of being the specific criteria that need to be met to be saved. Right. You know, you have to do this, this, and this Mm -hmm. need a good sorts of bridging that gap in my head just kind of whirls around thinking, I then must be lost, you know, years ago. That's what she thought. And, and, and that's, these are all big questions and we'll wrestle with what Jesus said about them and what the other um, writers in the new Testament said about them, what they thought they were not all of one mind. (laughs) I'll tell you that right now. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have, Renee, you had a question? Well, just a, a, kind of a solidifying something in my brain because when Jesus died, he was resurrected. But just like we were talking about refinement. So in the Old Testament, the, the one thing I always had a hard time with the Old Testament is that 
the, you know, God sent these people to this land and then God ordered them to destroy all those people. But if we look at refinement, it wasn't the end of those people. Those people weren't just, they were just gone. They were refined. And it's, and it's, and not to say that, that cruel and horrible things didn't happen. Cruel right. and horrible things like, do happen. I yeah. don't think that, you know, how they entered the promised land was at all what the Lord meant to happen. I don't think it yeah. happened the way the Lord had planned it. What the Lord said was, was I'm going to clear these people out from ahead of you. you right. Know, if you ran across any of them, they didn't get cleared. So go for it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing but but um it's the i think i don't remember who brought this up actually it may it may have been you but but this it was julia that this story is just told from the perspective mm-hmm. of the israelites god yeah. has other stories with other people yeah so so that's it for today. If we talk any longer, the 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 recording will be too long for me to save. So <laughs> next week we're doing Esther Joe. It's a chiasm. So I know you're excited. <laughs> so it'll be my fun. favorite. We'll see you. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye, everybody. Thank you.